his infrared port next to Teal's, and pressed Levchin's freshly coated send button. Levchin held his breath. If something were to fail, it would fail now. But Teal's Palm Pilot beeped and displayed a message saying that it had successfully received the payment, which he proudly held up for the cameras to see. The entire Confinity team heaved a sigh of relief. For all the anxiety leading up to the beaming at Bucks, Buell remembered the main event as anticlimactic. Afterward, one of the television crew members came over to ask Teal and Levchin if they could repeat the transaction. His camera hadn't quite caught it. No, we cannot do it again, Levchin cried. It's millions of dollars moving from one bank to the other. We can't just do it again. At the cameraman's request, Teal and Buell play-acted the exchange. Levchin didn't have the energy to register his frustration. Instead, he wandered off to a corner table, sat down, and laid his head on the table. Sometime later, he awoke, finding his Confinity colleagues gone and a cold omelet next to him. The waiter told him that his teammates had left but paid for his breakfast. Should I be angry at Peter for not waking me up? Levchin wondered. Or should I be thankful that he was so caring to let me sleep? Thoughtful or otherwise, Teal was pleased with the event. It was a phenomenal way of breaking through the clutter, he said. Confinity earned some valuable press coverage, which in turn spurred several job applications and some investor interest, neither of which had come easily in the past. Despite the attention, the event didn't succeed in winning users. No one was calling the Confinity office asking how to beam money from their Palm Pilots. This was one of the lessons we had about PR early on, Nosek remembered. It was much more important for recruiting and for perception among investors than it is about actual product adoption. Arguably, the most important signal from the beaming at Bucks was internal. In just months, Levchin, Teal, and their small group had created an app worth covering, even worth televising. It boosted the team's confidence. I think we needed to believe where things would go, Nosek said. As the internet boom began, startup superfluities flooded the Bay Area. Expensive team retreats parties with limitless alcohol, and pricey billboards. None of it, Teal and Levchin thought, credibly advanced a given company's products or mission. They would not use Nokia Ventures' millions for such excesses. The funds did, however, allow them one luxury, a better name for the beaming product. Confinity sufficed as a corporate name, but for a consumer product, they worried that four syllables beginning with con wouldn't inspire trust. Besides, just Confinity the Money to Me didn't exactly float off the tongue. A consumer products company needed a name with mass appeal, and the task of finding that name fell to Nosek, who turned to the internet for guidance. He typed www.naming.com into his browser and discovered the website of a naming firm, Master McNeil. 
We figured they owned the URL naming.com, so that was promising. Nosek explained. S.B. Master, the firm's founder, had earned a triple major from UC Santa Cruz in economics, music, and a self-designed course of study called The History of the Book. Following an MBA at Harvard, she founded the naming division of a branding company behind the names Touchstone Pictures and Weston Hotels. Then she set off on her own, creating Master McNeil and advising companies on what to call themselves. Master married a poetic sensibility with hard-nosed business skills. Too many startups, she believed, treated naming as a mere exercise in wordplay, a kind of bounce-it-off-the-wall, somewhat random, purely creative process. She believed that naming was as crucial a business decision as any other, and merited analytic rigor. In June 1999, Confinity signed Master McNeil to name its beaming product. Master and her team interviewed Teal, Levchin, Nosek, and other Confinity employees. Together, the group solidified what the name should suggest. 1. Convenient, easy, simple to set up or use. 2. Instant, fast, instantaneous, no waiting, time-saving, quick. 3. Portable, handy, always with you. 4. Transmit, beam, exchange, send, receive, give, get. 5. Money, accounts, financial transactions, numbers, moving money around. Confinity's discussions with Master McNeil revealed an important question about the product's trajectory. Money beaming appealed to the American tech crowd, but how would Confinity grow to markets beyond them? The team didn't have an answer yet, but they urged Master McNeil to split the difference and to find a name that was both not overly techy and yet appropriate for anyone who uses a portable electronic device, PDA, cell phone, with emphasis on early adopters, as well as a name appropriate for use in the U.S., France, Germany, Spain, Italy. Criteria and naming objectives in hand, the Master McNeil team set to work generating dozens of potential names, a list they winnowed to the 80 most promising names, and following a check of trademarks, URLs, and common law, a dozen recommended ones. Among them were eMoneyBeam, Zapio, Momo, Cachet, and PayPal. E-Moneybeam and Momo were shelved quickly. Zapio was playful and spoke to the core product, zapping money. But the Confinity team didn't warm to it. Initially, they thought Cachet was the best option, but Master herself thought it was not. Tough to spell and pronounce, Cachet also had a highfalutin tone, said Master, and wouldn't translate easily to other languages. Another strike against it, the domain www.cachet.com was claimed. Then there was PayPal. Master McNeil's presentation slide offered six rationales for its selection. Conveys money, accounts, financial transactions, moving money around. 
suggests friendly, accessible, simple, easy, suggests always with you, portable, handy, repeated, PA, structure, memorable, fun, particularly short, symmetrical, an ascender at either end, two descenders in the middle, dot com available. Master believed PayPal to be the clear winner. It was one syllable shorter than Zapio, and far less likely to be mispronounced than cachet. If people don't know how to say something, or if they are fearful of saying it incorrectly, Master said, they will do anything to avoid saying it. Embarrassment is a very strong emotion. Master also felt that PayPal engendered trust. Confinity had been Levchin's awkward attempt to bestow confidence, but Master believed the disarming quality of PAL in PayPal achieved that objective more gracefully. Your PAL is more than a friend. A PAL has their arm around you. You're with each other. You really trust each other, she explained. To top it all off, PayPal featured two Ps. We love these sounds, called plosives, Master explained. To produce them, you stop the air and then you release it. Plosives hung in the air for an extra fraction of a second. More time to remember the brand. To create a name that has two plosives really takes maximum advantage of this, said Master. Master was sold on PayPal, but many on the Confinity team, including Teal, were not. I remember all of us talking about it and thinking, PayPal? That sounds like the dumbest name ever, Engineer Russ Simmons remembered. It was definitely not a unanimous decision, Jack Selby, employee number 11, said. Board member Pete Buell believed it sounded too playful for a financial product. People are not going to trust PayPal. I thought it was the stupidest idea, he said. Guys, a PayPal? You're going to trust your money with a PayPal? But as they sat with PayPal, the team became convinced of its virtues. The initial way we were thinking about the product was so much about reimbursing each other at lunch and that kind of use case. PayPal just naturally fit that use case more than the others did recalled David Wallace, who had joined the company to handle customer service and operations. The verb form, just PayPal it to me, won them over, as did its simple spelling. Some early board members advocated for it, including Scott Bannister. I said, I think that's a great name. It's alliterative. It's very memorable. Because the domain www.paypal.com was unclaimed, the team would face no protracted, expensive negotiations to acquire it. They did so on July 15, 1999. Though Teal had originally preferred cachet, he too came around to PayPal. In fact, he would later reference it to illustrate the value of friendly, generous-sounding company monikers, using it to argue for Lyft over Uber and Facebook over MySpace. In the near term, Teal and many others would argue that, next to PayPal, 
X.com sounded ominous. Confinity selected PayPal, with a stylization, capitalizing the middle P. This intercap P stuck. Forever after, PayPal would be written capital P-A-Y capital P-A-L. A note in Master's Files records the adoption of the intercap P, a quick entry with the phrase, chose PayPal. But Master couldn't recall the edit's origins, nor if she, a graphic designer, or the Confinity team was the source. Name in hand, the company now needed to expand in order to bring its beaming product to life. Just like X.com, Confinity had to compete in a white-hot market for engineers. And even with ample funds and some press attention, hiring remained difficult. The team's collegiate connections paid some dividends, as did several of the early engineers' ties to the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, IMSA, a prestigious public magnet high school in Aurora, Illinois. As more engineers came aboard from both University of Illinois and IMSA networks, new product and business team members came by way of Stanford. To speed things up, the team instituted a several-thousand-dollar referral bonus for recruiting engineers. One hire, James Hogan, recalled his IMSA UIUC friend and Confinity engineer, Steve Chen, reaching out. He was very excited about the referral bonus, Hogan said, chuckling. He was pinging anyone he had known in his life who had some sort of software development experience. I was as much a dollar sign for the referral bonus as anything else. To win recruits over, the team crafted an edgy sales pitch. Years later, Levchin described the approach to a Stanford computer science class. Engineers are very cynical people. They're trained to be. And they can afford to be, given the large number of companies that are trying to recruit them in Silicon Valley right now. Since engineers think any new idea is dumb, they will tend to think that your new idea is dumb. They get paid a lot at Google doing some pretty cool stuff. Why stop indexing the world to go do your dumb thing? So the way to compete against the giants is not with money. Google will outbid you. They have an oil derrick that spits out $30 billion in search revenue every year. To win, you need to tell a story about cogs. At Google, you're a cog. Whereas with me, you're an instrumental piece of this great thing that we'll build together. Articulate the vision. Don't even try to pay well. Meet people's cash flow needs. Pay them so they can cover their rent and go out every once in a while. It's not about cash. It's about breaking through the wall of cynicism. It's about making 1% of this new thing way more exciting than a couple hundred grand and a cubicle at Google. For Hogan, that argument landed. He was living in Dallas and working as a cog in a very large machine at Nortel Networks. I was quite unhappy and quite ineffective, he admitted. 
Confinity's pitch hit home. Despite their honed recruiting spiel, hiring moved slowly. Some of this was by design. There was a huge, huge worry in engineering that any one bad hire could destroy the code base, engineer Eric Klein said. That's partially our doing because it's bad that a code base can be destroyed so easily. But if you're coding fast and loose, that's the code base that you build. And you create the problem. But then you have to hire people to fit within that problem. Levchin kept the bar for talent exceedingly high. Engineer Santos Janardhan noted, even if that came at the expense of speedy staffing. Max kept repeating, A's hire A's, B's hire C's. So the first B you hire takes the whole company down. Additionally, Confinity's leaders mandated that all prospects meet with every single member of the team. Once the lengthy round-robin of interviews was completed, the team discussed the candidate as a group, asking whether they passed the so-called Aura test. With tech firms hiring left and right, future recruits performed Aura tests of their own, and more than one employee cited the team as the main draw, more than the product vision or promise of success. Sky Lee had cut her teeth at Netscape and Adobe, and she was working at another startup when a former colleague who had joined Confinity suggested she meet David Sachs. She agreed, despite reservations. Her current startup wasn't faring well, and she didn't want to repeat that experience. Sachs invited Lee to visit the Confinity office at 10 p.m., and given the hour, she expected to stop by and then move on. But a short meet-and-greet was not to be. It was a full-on interview, she recalled, which I was not prepared for. By the time she left at 2 a.m., she had spoken to nearly every Confinity employee. She also learned about Confinity's Palm Pilot money transfer product. When Sachs pitched the concept, Lee noticed a problem. I'm like, but it's not beaming actual money, because you're just sinking on the desktop, right? She was right, of course, as technically, a transaction only took place once a Palm Pilot was nestled into its desktop cradle. I thought I was missing something, Lee recalled. Sachs confessed that Lee wasn't missing anything, and that her questions were justified. Despite the lengthy late-night interview and the limitations of infrared money beaming, Lee left intrigued by the team. I can't really put words on it because I go by my gut, she said, but the energy there... I hadn't felt that before, and I'm like, there's something here. After an additional interview, she joined Confinity, where she would play a key role in designing the company's signature products. Denise Aptekar, a member of the product team, had worked at another startup for several months when she met Luke Nosek at a party, where he grabbed a napkin and drew Confinity's money-beaming master plan. Aptekar was taken, not so much by the idea, but the way Nosek spoke about it. She came in to meet the team. 
I left the interview not being able to tell you anything exactly about the product or much else. Other than those are the people I want to work with, Aptekar recalled. Clearly hyper-competitive, clearly workaholics, clearly want to change the world. It was like, I found my people. Benjamin Listwan, a technical designer, was happily employed and not looking for his people when he met David Sachs and Max Levchin. After they met, Sachs invited Listwan to lunch at Confinity. Lunch turned into seven hours, Listwan recalled. The spontaneous several-hour jam session about design practices hooked him. I already feel like I'm actually in the room whiteboarding. If this is their interview, imagine what working here must be like, he remembered thinking. Early on, Teal instituted an informal no-firing rule. Firing people is like war, he explained, and war is bad, so you should try not to do it. The no-firing rule set a high bar for talent, but it also caused underperforming employees to be shuffled around the company rather than efficiently dismissed. We probably should have fired more people, one early employee admitted. The aura test and no-firing rule were imprecise and inefficient, but the deliberate recruiting process was designed to speed the company up. In Confinity's early days, Levchin observed that the number of people in a room correlated positively to friction in basic communication. If you're alone, he explained, you just work really hard and hope it's enough. Since it often isn't, people form teams. But in a team, an N-squared communications problem emerges. In a five-person team, there is something like 25 pairwise relationships to manage and communications to maintain. To minimize such chafe, Levchin wanted engineers who saw the world as he did. For example, when early on Levchin chose C++ as PayPal's programming language— which even he referred to as a kind of crappy language, he expected the founding engineers not to complain. Anyone that did want to argue about it, Levchin said, wouldn't have fit in. Arguing would have impeded progress. Still, both he and Teal were cautious to avoid groupthink. Arguing about smart marketing moves or different approaches to solving tactical or strategic problems is fundamental. These are the decisions that actually matter, Levchin said. A good rule of thumb is that diversity of opinion is essential any time you don't know anything about something important. But if there's a strong sense of what's right already, don't argue about it. Finding that balance wasn't easy. And the team faced its share of frustrations, as well as a few violations of the no-firing but they also notched some hiring wins. During this period, Confinity landed its first out-of-network hire, Chad Hurley. He would go on to become one of the co-founders of YouTube, but in 1999, Hurley was a new college graduate with a fine arts degree and no prior connection to the Confinity team. He had seen a press mention of the Beaming at Bucks and sent a cold email expressing his interest 
which earned him a meeting. After a flight delay, a late arrival, and an all-night interview, Hurley was extended and offered to join Confinity as its first graphic designer. His first assignment? Designing the logo for Confinity's PayPal product. He landed on a blue-and-white image, with a stylized letter P set in a swirl. Levchin also asked Hurley to design a team t-shirt, and he gave Hurley the seed of an idea. What if the t-shirt riffed on the Sistine Chapel ceiling? Instead of God sending the spark of life to Adam through his fingertips, the Almighty could instead send him money through a palm pilot. As the years passed, this t-shirt featuring Hurley's Michelangelo remix became a treasured team memento. With the addition of Hurley and several others, Confinity outgrew its cramped headquarters at 394 University Avenue. The team found a space available just five minutes down the road, at 165 University Avenue. The building carried special significance, as its most recent tenant was the most talked-about company in town, Google. Confinity inherited the search giant's ping-pong table, which, for a time, doubled as its boardroom table. The change in offices also eliminated an important rite of passage. At 394 University, each new hire was required to assemble their own IKEA desk. A bonding and democratizing ritual, it also paid homage to Levchin's early IKEA furnishings. In a fatal blow to tradition, Confinity's new offices at 165 University Avenue came mostly furnished. A new name, new offices, and new employees. It all looked like progress. But an old central question still bedeviled the company. How exactly would people discover the Palm Pilot beaming product? And more importantly, would they use it? At some level, the team assumed demand would exist. If they built it, the beamers would come. It was an easy mistake to make, given their surroundings. Handheld devices like the Palm Pilot and its technological cousin, feature phones, were all the rage in Silicon Valley. I was very bullish on the Palm Pilot platform, Scott Bannister admitted. Many, many people out here were. By 1999, more than 5 million people owned Palm devices, and 3Com, Palm's parent company, was even exploring a Palm spin-off IPO. The Confinity team felt confident it could surf this handheld device growth wave. The team purchased advertising and magazines devoted to the handheld market, and team members took to various internet tech forums to trumpet the PayPal product. During this period, Nosek also proposed an unorthodox marketing idea. Seeing the shabby state of the office awning, he suggested that Confinity replace it, with a strobing infrared light built in to beam messages about PayPal. The awning strobe light ad never did come to pass, but it illustrated the lengths the team was willing to go to win users. Indeed, it showed how far they'd have to go. 
because despite all their hard work, beamers weren't beaming. And by the summer of 1999, advisors and friends of the company probed the product's viability. We are living in the heaven of Palm Pilots, observed Reed Hoffman, a Stanford friend of Teal's and early Confinity board member. And we could walk into every single restaurant and go to each table and ask how many people have Palm Pilots. He guessed the answer was between zero and one per restaurant. And that means your use case can only be used between zero and one times per restaurant per meal cycle. You're hosed. It's over on this idea. At one of many late-night product debates that summer, Reed Hoffman raised another critical stumbling block. What if one of these hypothetical PayPal users forgot their Palm Pilot and needed to execute a transaction? Levchin proposed a workaround, suggesting the PayPal.com website be set up to send money via a user's email address. Users had to use the website anyway to download the PayPal software for syncing their handheld devices to their computers. The site could have an email system as a backup to the Palm Pilot money-beaming option. When emailing money was first suggested, few recognized it as a eureka moment. Quite the opposite. Levchin intended it to be a throwaway demo, buried in a corner of the main site for the unlucky souls who forgot their Palm Pilots. To him, emailing money was a far cry from PayPal's primary use case. This feature, if it could even be called that, was a concession to Hoffman's critique, not a core product. This concession quickly became useful in ways Levchin hadn't predicted. Before the emailing money demo, he'd perform an elaborate ritual to test PayPal's plumbing. He'd beam money from one Palm Pilot to another, sync both devices in their cradles, and then check two dummy accounts to confirm a funds transfer. The email money demo dramatically simplified this sequence. Levchin could now test transfers with a few mouse clicks. Within weeks, Levchin had become an avid user of the Afterthought product, even as he remained committed to the vision of the original. That should have been a clue, he said. Eric Klein remarked on the team's fortunate timing. Things happen on the internet like a snowball effect. It rolls quickly. It went from nobody really knowing about websites to everybody knowing about websites in what seemed like a year, he said. And so the idea was business professionals were using their Palm Pilots to pay. And we were going to catch that wave. But the wave of the web just tsunamied all over that concept. And we were just lucky that we ended up having both. Another person who severely doubted Money Beaming's viability was a recent hire who would play a pivotal role in the company's success, David Sachs. Teal and Sachs had attended Stanford together. And after graduating, Sachs went to law school at the University of Chicago before heading to the management consultancy McKinsey & Company. In mid-1999, 
Sachs and Teal were having regular discussions about Confinity and its products. Teal urged Sachs to leave consulting and join Confinity. Sachs was interested, and entrepreneurship ran in the family. Sachs's grandfather had moved from Lithuania to South Africa in the 1920s to launch a candy factory. But his grandson, while intrigued by his friend Teal's company, thought the Palm Pilot idea a dud. He came west for an interview nonetheless, which was not a success. Sachs definitely didn't pass the aura test, one early Confinity team member said. The team objected, in part, to Sachs's total dismissal of the Palm Pilot product. It was a dumb idea, Sachs remembered. There were two problems. One is that there are only five million Palm users, so unless you're with somebody who also had a Palm Pilot, the app is useless. And then there's the other problem. Even if you're with somebody who's got a Palm Pilot, what would you use it for? Nobody could really come up with anything better than splitting dinner tabs. Sachs told Teal he'd join the company, if the email product was given primacy. I said, if that's what the company's going to do, I'll quit my job at McKinsey tomorrow, because that sounded to me like a killer idea, Sachs said. Teal assured him that email would take precedence over beaming, and Sachs agreed to join the company but that assurance was unknown to most of the rest of the team, who still thought beaming was the priority. When Sachs arrived and began deprioritizing the Palm Pilot product, the engineers were surprised and incensed. Levchin knew, but no one else on the team knew, Sachs said. So I think their perception of me was that I was the guy coming in there and telling them everything they were doing was wrong. Teal brokered a compromise. Both products would be built side by side. In hiring David Sachs, Teal pulled rank and overruled the team's objections. This was a rare move for Teal, who believed Sachs a rare candidate. After all, few people would come into an interview guns blazing against their prospective employer's flagship product. Teal valued bracing honesty and he trusted that Sachs would speak candidly. Peter said, I need people here I can scream at, Sachs remembered. Within the company, Sachs earned a reputation for being tough and tough-minded, and many in the company credited him with focusing the team and sharpening the product. For as much as people gave David Sachs shit for arguing, it was always good arguing, it was good trouble recalled Giacomo de Gregoli. It was never ad hominem or shitty or entitled. It was always about the idea. It was always about, look, what are we trying to do? What does the customer need? Why are we even here? Much of that summer's discussion was hypothetical. Confinity didn't yet know how the public would receive its products, because its products hadn't yet been released. The beaming at Bucks was a showcase, not a launch. Teal wanted another opportunity to tell the world about Confinity, 
not only to prove the value of Confinity's creations to investors, but also to give the company a second chance at press attention. Accordingly, he pushed Levchin to launch. We worked seven days a week, 20-hour days, just writing code, trying to get this thing to work, Levchin remembered of that summer. During this period, the team had to quickly educate itself on financial services, among other topics. None of us had ever interacted with a bank before, and never done any of this code, engineer Eric Klein recalled. And our poor CFO, David Jakes, had to sit us down and tell us how banks work. And then we had to write the software four weeks before we went live. It was one thing to beam money between two Confinity-owned Palm Pilots for television cameras. It would be another when real users began crowding the airwaves with real dollars. It's kind of funny in retrospect because we didn't know anything about payments. We had never written code that had interacted with a database. We didn't know well enough to know that we should be more intimidated by the problem, Simmons said. As news of Palm Pilot money beaming made its way onto technology forums like Slashdot, the company faced its first set of critics. One Slashdot poster wrote a post about the technology, bracingly titled, What an Amazingly Bad Idea! Bad idea because there's at least three points at which to break in and subvert the system. On the IR level, such as copying someone's transaction from a distance. At the software level, such as getting a legit payment, then hacking the software on the palm to up the amount by a large number. At the return the data to Confinity, such as sending them records of transactions that never actually occurred in the first place. Plus probably more. Admittedly, all these three can be fixed with the right kinds of encryption, but I doubt they worried about that too much when writing the software. Just don't use this for anything important for about a year or two, giving them time to work out the bugs. Probably vaporware anyway. Slash Dot's tech-savvy users were sharply, and often comically, critical. One commenter wrote an extract from Galactic Encyclopedia, May 2010, describing robberies of the future. And from that point on, robbers had palm pilots in their equipment, along with switchblades and guns. When they robbed somebody, their usual words were, Point your pilot to mine, and beam all your money and nobody gets hurt. The team hustled to write a technical FAQ, in which they acknowledged the criticism. Was this technical FAQ created in response to the postings on Slashdot? Their response... Yes, this was written in a hurry to address posters' concerns ASAP. Please forgive the lack of organization, formatting, and indexing. In response to, what is the flavor strength of your crypto, the team's response was both technical and candid. Currently, we use 163-bit ECDSA for signatures on payments, DESX for encrypting data on handheld devices, Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange Algorithm for Exchanging Keys for IR Transmissions, 
DESX for encrypting IR transmissions, and ECC-based TLS for securing connections from the desktop to the server during a sync. We bang on the keyboard for half an hour or so to get enough entropy to seed our random number generator. The team's inexperience showed in other ways as well. At one point, Levchin and his team learned that they neglected to use double-entry accounting in the PayPal system. Double-entry accounting is a centuries-old cornerstone of bookkeeping, by which any credit or debit has an equal and opposite record. If you're an engineer and you've never encountered accounting, Levchin said, you don't really understand why it might be helpful to have two copies. I thought double-entry accounting was some weird accountant fiction. He asked Confinity's CFO for an accounting crash course, and the team rebuilt the database accordingly. The product itself pivoted rapidly before launch. Teal had been doing some preliminary press in New York. After Peter had had his first round of interviews, he calls and basically tells us, Hey guys, I told everybody that this is going to be totally free. Take off all the fees, David Wallace recalled. The team had to update all the website language to remove fees. Though Wallace briefly questioned the wisdom of promising a free product in perpetuity. Approaching problems fresh and feeling the pressure to launch, the team had to devise solutions quickly. But that approach left the engineers with an operating style that served them well in PayPal's near future and in their later work. Even in the current work I'm doing, we'll be in stand-ups talking about the situation we're in, and your mind goes to, how can I solve this situation? What is some invention? You learn to invent instead of research and implement, Eric Klein observed. During this period, the company also experienced the closest of close calls. In moving hard drives from one server to another, Confinity's system administrator inadvertently wiped out the code base. No problem, Levchin thought. Let's just fire up the backup. That's when the team discovered to its horror that the same system administrator had failed to retain a backup. Thousands of lines of code and eight months of work had vanished. For a moment, it looked like PayPal was done for, Teal said. Then another engineer, David Gauzebeck, spoke up. He had replicated the company's entire source code. We were all developing on a shared server, and we were running out of space there, Gauzebeck explained. And we had set up a new one where people could move everything over. I did that and I was apparently the only one who had done that at the time the original one died. Galsbeck's backup saved the team from rebuilding its code line by painful line. It was the closest shave we had, Levchin remembered. The system administrator became a rare exception to the no-firing rule. Summer turned to fall and the team's preparations for PayPal's debut dragged on. Levchin was forced to petition Teal for repeated extensions to the launch date, leaving Teal exasperated. It was a rocky run-up to the launch, Levchin recalled. 
During this period, Levchin sought a security check on the product. Palm Pilot code was in its infancy, and cryptographic code for Palm Pilot even more so. To speed up the PayPal application, Levchin had employed a method of public key cryptography known as elliptic curve cryptography. But here, too, he was in new territory. Palm had such a paucity of crypto code, especially elliptic curve, that we had to build some of it ourselves, Levchin recalled. By creating these elements from scratch, Levchin risked vulnerabilities. You don't ever want to build your own primitives. You want it to be done by someone who's got nothing else in the world to do other than just building the crypto primitives, Levchin shared. Levchin had been trading thoughts on cryptographic security with, among others, Confinity's technical advisor and Stanford professor, Dr. Dan Bonet. Bonet and Levchin were both enthused about mobile technology and cryptography and enjoyed playing Ultimate Frisbee together. Crucially, Bonet was as passionate about Palm Pilots as Levchin. I have to say, for many years, even after the iPhone came out, I was so in love with my Palm Pilot that I resisted the iPhone, Bonet joked. He and his Stanford colleagues had even taken a page out of NOSEC and the UIUC ACM book. They connected a Palm Pilot wallet to a Stanford vending machine. There was a cryptographic protocol between the two, Bonet remembered. Money would transfer between the two. Expert in securely expanding Palm Pilots to the world of vending machines and elsewhere, Bonet was the person that Levchin turned to when he wanted a speedy code check that fall. So I was like, well, what's the closest thing to a security audit that I can do in 12 hours? So then I thought, hey, Dan, how would you like to come by and read my code? And he's like, of course, anything for you, man, happy to, Levchin recalled. Both Bonet and Levchin assumed they would be doing a quick scan, after which Bonet was due to celebrate his 30th birthday. Soon, however, Bonet caught an issue. He reads through the code and he's like, Dude, what is this? Levchin recalled. The issue was in how Levchin and the team were packeting certain bits. Per Levchin, Bonet said, No, 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 look at how you are packeting it. And I'm like, Oh my god. And he's like, This is not random. Like, this is the opposite of random. I could break it with a pencil. I don't need a supercomputer to break this. What followed was a mad all-night scramble in which the two had to go through every line of code and fix the mistake. At one point, Bonet recalled, he went home to briefly celebrate his birthday, then returned to the office where he remained with Levchin until 5 a.m. Birthday interruptions and frantic all-nighters notwithstanding, the Confinity team put the finishing touches on its first release. In late October and early November, its small group of employees began sending emails to their friends and family. They announced that their company's first product was now available for download and use. PayPal was live. Chapter 7 Money Talks 
In the late summer of 1999, Elon Musk's X.com was a pale shadow of the digital finance behemoth he envisioned, and that PayPal would later become. At the time, X.com had no finished products and a hollowed-out team. After the departure of Canadian financier Harris Fricker and company, X.com's employee directory contained a mere five names. Missing were the company's founding president and COO, CTO, and VP of product development, CFO, principal architect, and VP of corporate development. A young engineer named Scott Alexander had a front-row seat to the turmoil. Fresh from Berkeley with a major in computer science and a minor in business administration, Alexander had watched his classmates throw themselves headlong into anything with a dot-com suffix attached. Alexander opted to take his time, carefully scrutinizing startup business plans. Even though there was this fever in 1999, he remembered, I didn't believe that a mail-order dog food company was really going to sustain its billion-dollar value. Alexander found X.com through a recruiting site. He applied and earned an interview with Musk, which he remembered distinctly. Near the end of the interview, Musk said, I want you to understand this is a startup company, and a lot is going to be expected of you. Like, you can't just come in and work a 40-hour work week. I expect really long hours until we succeed, and you're going to be asked to do the impossible. One day after his interview, Alexander received an urgent email from Ed Ho, the X.com co-founder. Ho told Alexander that X.com was splitting up and that he and other senior managers were leaving to start new companies. He ended by wishing Alexander luck with X.com. Shortly after, Alexander found another email from Ho, this time from a personal address asking him to come work for his new company. Alexander found the recruiting war weird and left for a long-planned vacation to Cabo San Lucas, hoping to leave it behind. Musk, however, had other plans. I come back and there were like six messages on my answering machine, Alexander said. Musk said, please give me a call. You've heard the bad news, but I've got some good news. Musk told Alexander that he had secured venture capital funding and that he was putting millions of his own money into X.com. Alexander found Musk's personal commitment convincing. Elon really impressed me, he remembered. Money talks. He joined X.com in August 1999. Until that point, Musk hadn't taken on outside investment for X.com, despite interest. After feeling burned by Zip2's investors, he wanted to be deliberate this time around. Still, Musk talked with venture capitalists interested in X.com. Two factors influenced him. First, the staggering sums pouring into internet startups, a mania he called happy gas. Even just in the period from 1998 to 1999, the amount of venture capital invested in internet startups increased considerably, 
as the buzz about all things Internet reached its apex. Though X.com was well-funded by Musk, it held a risky position. If competitors down the street caught a whiff of happy gas, they could expand rapidly and leave X.com in the dust. Then there was the story. While Musk continued to boast of his huge personal stake in the company, he, like Teal, was also aware of the signaling value of outside investment. We didn't need the money, Musk said. It was more like the imprimatur of a top VC. To that end, Musk courted a high-profile general partner at the Valley's marquee firm, Michael Moritz at Sequoia Capital. Moritz cut an unconventional figure in Silicon Valley. An Oxford graduate with a Welsh accent, he was a former Time magazine journalist with limited technical background. But his years of reporting honed his instinct for talent and ambition he went on to spot what would become the era's biggest internet companies when they were just saplings. In one famous deal, he secured a 25% stake in Yahoo.com for $1 million, when its founders were still working from a trailer. Moritz couldn't recall exactly how he first connected with Musk, in part because 1999, he recalled, was the venture equivalent of a hurricane. We'd gone from the 35-hour-a-week business to a business where there were more opportunities than you could possibly conjure up, where everybody wanted to start a company, where everybody could do no wrong. Still, X.com stood out from the crowded field. Moritz found its story interesting, and its chief salesman, Musk, convincing. Elon, as the world knows today, is a very gifted storyteller, Moritz said, smiling. And some of the stories even come true. Moritz also recalled meeting a big bank executive at the time, Citicorp's John Reed, and seeing the truth in X.com's critique of the industry. I remember thinking, we can get him, absolutely. Importantly for Musk, Moritz was also sold on the X.com name. It was like Yahoo or Apple, he said. I think there's a benefit to having a name that, once you've heard it, is memorable and doesn't seem like it came out of the kitchen mixer or the brand naming entities that someone like Toyota might hire. In August of 1999, Sequoia Capital became a backer of X.com purchasing $5 million worth of X.com shares from Musk and installing Mike Moritz on the company's board. Sequoia had insisted that Musk step back his original personal investment. Moritz was like, Dude, you should not have basically everything except your house and car in a company, Musk remembered. Musk reinvested his personal funds later, though at a higher valuation. Had Moritz and Sequoia known precisely what they were signing up for, the years of difficulty ahead both for the company and the tech ecosystem in general, he wondered if they'd have signed up at all. I think we waded into it perhaps the same way that Elon and then Peter and Max waded into it, with a level of ignorance, Moritz remembered. 
there was certainly an element of wanton adventurism associated with the decision. Steve Armstrong interviewed for a financial comptroller position during this period and remembered Musk's own adventurism on vivid display. He's like, we're going to do this online bank, and we've got insurance services, and we've got the broker-dealer to go set up, and we just bought a bank, and we're going to put Bank of America out of business, and I've got $5 million in the bank from Sequoia Capital. He shows me the checkbook, and he just hands it to me and says, Your job is to make sure I don't lose it all. And I'm like, All right, I'm in. Funding secured, but a crucial question remained. What exactly had Moritz and Sequoia Capital purchased a piece of? There was almost no product. There were a lot of ideas thrown around and a little bit of code. Alexander remembered of the company's progress when he started in August of 1999. X.com was a bank without deposits an investment firm without assets under management, a digital finance wonderland with a bare-bones website. At this point, X.com had little to show for Musk's gargantuan promises. Partly, this resulted from Musk and Fricker's mid-1999 row, which had slowed down the company's product development by many weeks. Still, Musk didn't hesitate to broadcast his larger ambitions for X.com. He told the Computer Business Review that X.com would be a combination of the Bank of America, Schwab, Vanguard, and Quicken. When asked about his business plan by Mutual Fund Market News, he emphasized X.com's nonlinear approach compared to existing financial services companies. To have someone's entire financial wealth on a single statement sheet loans, mortgages, insurance, bank accounts, mutual funds, stock holdings, is revolutionary. Musk declared that by year's end, X.com would have an S&P 500 mutual fund, a U.S. aggregate bond fund, and a money market fund all up and running. Musk believed that with the alchemy of the Internet and his own boundless initiative— X.com could deliver these services cheaper, faster, and better than existing players could. X.com had very high aspirations, observed an early employee, Chris Chen. I think the online bank was just a core component of the product, but we wanted to be a financial supersite. So we wanted to offer insurance products. We wanted to offer investments. These weren't wholly new ideas, of course, and industry analysts argued that incumbents would be able to sink X.com by simply building copycat products. But Musk had seen the big bank's unwillingness to innovate from within. He wasn't losing sleep over a possible competition from the J.P. Morgans and Goldman Sachs of the world. There was also a recent, powerful precedent for Musk's agglomerated approach to Internet business. Jeff Bezos's similar put-it-all-in-one-place strategy was driving breakneck expansion for Amazon.com and gaining notice. Bezos had pushed the company to sell CDs, 
while it was still struggling to fulfill its customers' book orders. Both Bezos and Musk knew that one site offering everything trumped five sites offering one thing apiece. This wasn't an especially groundbreaking insight. The concept of a general store was centuries old. But it took foresight to bring such a thing to life at internet scale, and to do so when customers were still taking their first tentative steps toward online shopping and banking. In one sense, Musk was attempting a higher dive with X.com than Bezos had with Amazon.com. Amazon.com wasn't barred by law from selling books and CDs side by side. But the government stood in the way of X.com simultaneously selling banking and brokerage products, at least until late 1999, when Congress repealed much of the 1933 Glass-Steagall Act. Outside of those specific rules, each of X.com's finance offerings was heavily regulated. And to a regulator, Musk's financial superstore sounded like a nightmare. To Musk, money merely represented entries in a database. X.com was just uniting the world's entries into one database and cutting out the profit-seeking intermediaries. My vision for X.com, Musk proclaimed, was essentially the global center for all money. Based on that vision, Musk rapidly expanded the team. Tim Wenzel, a freelance recruiter, consulted for X.com in the early days. At this point, the valley was on fire. It was really hard to hire people. Everyone had multiple offers if they were good, he observed. But I knew very quickly that there was something special about X.com, because almost every candidate wanted to work there. Almost everyone was willing to pass on their other opportunities to go there. Eventually, Wenzel faced this choice himself. He was paid on a fee-per-hire basis, but X.com told him that the bills were growing too steep. He'd have to join the company full-time and recruit exclusively for X.com, or part ways with them. I was not hesitant at all. I was like, I'm in, Wenzel said. Several early X.com employees observed the marked contrast between Confinity's mostly male 20-something initial hires and X.com's far more varied roster, which included parents, women, and experienced hires with decades in the financial services trenches. Deborah Bazona had seen her share of companies as a benefits consultant, and when she signed X.com on as a client, she remarked that it was the most diverse company I had ever worked with. That was notable to me. During the height of the dot-com boom, Bizona advised many startups on their health care and retirement administration. And even within that fast-moving set, X.com and its CEO stood apart. Musk gave employees ample freedom, the room to be everything they could be but set palpably high expectations for performance. I have never worked so hard and fast in all my life, she said. Bizona enacted Musk's preferences around salaries, benefits, 
H-1B visas, and severance packages. And she found X.com very generous in its benefit packages. And its CEO gracious even when individuals exited. If somebody couldn't cut it, if somebody wasn't doing their job, Elon always let them go with dignity and grace. The Zonor recalled severance packages being given to departing employees, regardless of rank. X.com also drew talent from recruiting and staffing firms. One firm, Kelly Services, helped to bring aboard temps, including Elizabeth Alejo, hired as a new accounts manager. For her, X.com's online offerings represented a pivot in a career that included stints as a retail bank teller and bank manager. Her time in retail banking proved an asset. She examined new X.com accounts and matched the information submitted against bills and other verifying documents, which she had seen plenty of during her brick-and-mortar banking days. Alejo was also among the first to see the full spectrum of fraud, including people falsifying utility bills to open X.com accounts. Dialing up fraudulent customers, she recalled the patient process of sniffing out malfeasance. We would let them talk and, you know, let them blah, 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 and then go in for the kill. Then there'd be silence or they'd hang up, Alejo said. Alejo was hired full-time, soon after joining as a temp. During this period, Musk also hired John Story as X.com's executive vice president. Story had a decades-long career, including senior-level roles at Alliance Capital and Montgomery Asset Management. And his arrival generated some stories in the financial trades— burnishing the narrative that X.com was knitting together the old guard with the new. A company with zero assets under management and no branch offices plans to eat your lunch, wrote Ignites.com. What gives its claim credibility is its leaders. Another finance veteran joined shortly thereafter. Mark Sullivan left his job as a vice president at First Data Investor Services Group in Boston, to join X.com as Vice President of Operations. My career had always been bricks and mortar, he said, and I hadn't dipped my toe into the dot-com world. Sullivan agreed to fly to Palo Alto and have lunch with Musk and Story. Musk quickly made his move. We finished lunch and Musk said, So when can you get out here? Sullivan remembered. Jesus, I wasn't prepared for that. Sullivan gave notice and moved to Palo Alto within weeks. Only in his late thirties, Sullivan became one of X.com's adults. I was the gray hair, Sullivan joked. Another of the gray hairs who joined shortly after was Sandeep Lal. He came by way of Singapore and Citibank, where he earned financial services expertise. His interview with Musk was memorable. I remember that I used the words change management, and he said, Stop using bullshit words, Lal recalled. To check Lal's competence, Musk offered a test. He said, Okay, if I were to do a funds transfer from Singapore to the United States, how would it work? Lal carefully outlined each step 
and Musk made him an offer on the spot. One of the team's most consequential hires during this period was a business development manager named Amy Rowe Clement. Clement had begun her career at J.P. Morgan, where she found her work not as fulfilling as she'd hoped. I always wanted to have a broader impact on the world, she explained. After leaving the bank, she came west and worked in corporate strategy and business development at Gap. But still, she yearned for something more. While applying to business schools, Clement talked to a banking contact, John Story, who told her about the exciting financial services startup he had just joined. Initially, Clement was reluctant, but Story insisted that she come down and meet Musk. She found the interview and Musk's pitch really interesting. Why does it cost so much money to move bits and bytes within the financial system? She wondered, after hearing Musk's industry critique. Clement joined X.com as a business development manager, but soon found herself working on use cases for the product. My job became the intermediary between the developers and humanity, she joked. At X.com, Clement came to realize what David Sachs had experienced just blocks away. It took discipline and strategy to wring products from code. By multiple accounts, Clement translated from developer to humanity with aplomb, and not just in managing X.com's nascent products. More than one employee cited Clement as the person they turned to in a crisis, whether regarding products or colleagues. Several people referred to her as a vital buffer, an ace diplomat who diffused tense contests of personality and kept a hothouse organization on an even keel. Clement had interviewed with X.com on a lark, mid-application to graduate school. But joining the company changed her life. She joked that her product role evolved to become a mix of therapist, historian, and operator. The therapist was just that, you know. Things were difficult, and there was some buffering that needed to go on, she remembered. The historian was that it was really hard to come in there and build product if you didn't understand the code base or how it would trip up a certain localization challenge. And finally, Clement, the operator. I really care a lot about the how, she said. I did a lot of sitting down and saying, okay, how are we going to work together across design, content management, engineering, QA, customer support? I viewed that as a critical part of my job, which was making sure that things were flowing for everybody. Clement remained at the company for seven years, from late 1999 through its IPO and eventual acquisition by eBay. In that time, she oversaw the product and design organization and became one of eBay's youngest executives. For many PayPal alumni, Clement became a guiding light. Musk himself called Clement an unsung hero. Another colleague shared that she studied Clement's operating style as a model. I always wanted to be just like Amy, she noted. She was my idol. X.com's engineer hiring moved swiftly as well. 
Colin Catlin, received a phone call from a headhunter in September. Catlin had left a payments startup called Billpoint, which had been acquired by eBay early in 1999. It was his first Silicon Valley job, and with a team small enough to fit in a garage, each member played a vital role. But Billpoint sold to eBay just months after launching and Catlin soon felt sidelined by the corporate bureaucracy. His ideas, including the suggestion that Billpoint build a universal payment processing system, were met with a chilly reception. I felt like I had unfinished business, Catlin said. I had put all this effort into doing payments work. If I couldn't do it at Billpoint, I am going to do it somewhere. In his interview with Musk, he discussed building a payment network. According to Catlin, Musk was open to the idea, and Catlin joined X.com in early September as its director of engineering. A Harvey Mudd College graduate named Nick Carroll arrived around the same time, just following X.com's executive exodus. Only two years out of school, he earned a battlefield promotion to senior-level engineer. Carroll recruited two other engineers from his days at Harvey Mudd, Jeff Gates and Todd Semple. From Musk's network came another member of the engineering team, Brandon Spikes. Spikes had worked at Zip2, where he had experienced all the ups and downs of startup life. By his own admission, he was betting on the ups, and specifically betting on Musk himself rather than X.com. I was a little worried, actually, that doing an online bank would become boring, Spikes said, laughing. Brandon Spikes was given a director title and a coveted email address. B at x.com The growing team began to shape the product. They introduced a placeholder website. Visitors to x.com were told to Register your email address here to be notified of our launch. The site also featured a statement of what it was poised to become. The Internet has made traditional ways of managing money nearly obsolete. Already, thousands of people enjoy the benefits of low-cost online trading. Thousands more save money through online insurance rate research and financial planning, but millions of people still pay brick-and-mortar banks for expensive branches and tellers, when they are more intimate with the corner ATM. X.com's mission as a purely internet-based company with no branches and no old, expensive-to-maintain computer infrastructure is to put those banking fees and hidden charges back into the pockets of our customers, while also providing low-cost solutions for personal investing, insurance, and financial planning. X.com will be the seamless solution for personal finance management. In a nod to Musk's first company, the site included directions to X.com's office, courtesy of Zip2 Corp. X.com also continued its use of third-party vendors to speed up its development efforts. One such vendor, Envision Financial Systems, built software for asset managers and financial firms. Satnam Gambhir, an Envision co-founder, 
was accustomed to dealing with big banks and financial institutions, not typically fast movers. Our sales cycle usually is six months to two years, in terms of when we first meet a client, to when we close a deal and we implement, Gambier explained. By contrast, Envision and X.com signed paperwork within two weeks of an initial visit, and Envision gave X.com access to its code shortly thereafter. And then, within ten weeks, the X.com team had built the integration and they were live, Gambier said, marveling at the turnaround. In September, X.com announced a deal with Barclays that would allow X.com customers to invest in its mutual funds. A deal with a community bank, First Western National Bank in Lahara, Colorado, followed quickly. This agreement would allow X.com to purchase First Western National Bank if regulators approved, and it allowed X.com to call itself bank-chartered and FDIC-insured. Importantly, X.com could now create its own branded debit cards and distribute checks. These developments earned X.com coverage from CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, and Fortune magazine, among others. Musk used these press hits to broadcast his bold pronouncements. Even while X.com remained under construction, he forecast its dazzling future feature set. The user application process would take a scant two minutes, he claimed. He promised no fees and no redemption penalties. He highlighted the not one, but two security firms carefully monitoring the site and said that the company's focus was customer advocacy. Musk also took the opportunity to contrast X.com with its competition. He maligned two online banking competitors, Wingspan Bank and Telebank Financial Corp as weak on the technology side. Then he set his sights on a storied industry player, the Vanguard Group. Asked how X.com's investment pricing would compete with the famously price-efficient Vanguard funds, Musk replied, We will not be undercut by anyone, period. Narratives like Musk's played well in the media, successfully tapping the public's perennial interest in underdog stories, but Musk also had a special knack for capturing the press's attention. He discovered that his willingness to veer into exaggeration often did the trick. X.com wasn't even in existence yet, and it was already earning breathless press mentions. So was Musk himself. In August of 1999, weeks after his company hemorrhaged half its team, Salon.com wrote that Musk was poised to become Silicon Valley's next big thing. As September turned to October, Musk leaned on the X.com team to launch the site. Like at Confinity, X.com's engineering team had to endure the discomfort of asking a demanding CEO for more time. Elon was ready to go as soon as we had the architecture ready in September, Catlin said and to hold him off until October was hard. The team was concerned that I's needed dotting and T's needed crossing for a would-be financial company, 
Musk was concerned that if nothing launched soon, X.com would slide into irrelevance. Musk's focus intensified in the run-up to launch. The way he conducted himself around the office was almost frenetic. He's running from person to person, developer to finance to operations. He wanted answers. He wanted answers now. You had to be on your toes when he came around. You didn't want to say, I'll get back to you, Sullivan said. No detail escaped Musk's notice, and more than one employee described the stress of working under his watchful eye. That said, Musk demanded as much of himself as he did of his team. We slept under desks, Catlin said. Even Elon slept under his desk. He didn't pull himself away from that sort of thing. The engineers recall their CEO working elbow to elbow with them through knotty technical challenges. Most CEOs are not very transparent with their staff, Spike said. Elon was like, We're in the trenches together. Let's do this. It was powerful to work with him because of that. For corporate veterans, X.com was a taste of scrappy startup culture. I didn't really have an office or a desk, Mark Sullivan, the big finance transplant, said. I had a chair and a milk crate. Wednesday Donahue, who joined the company in an administrative position, recalled the office's decorated cubicles young workforce, and casual clothing, including the company's CEO arriving at the office in a t-shirt and shorts. On one occasion, investors were set to visit with Musk and other X.com leaders, and Donahue overheard someone urge Musk to change into a suit and tie. I remember him saying, if they don't like the way I dress, they're not going to like my product, and it's the product that's going to get them to invest, not the way I look. The moment stayed with her. If you've got something that's important, people are going to want it. It doesn't matter what you look like. Nick Carroll, who joined X.com by way of aerospace giant Lockheed Martin, learned fast that he wasn't at Lockheed anymore. At one point, Carroll recommended hiring a database developer to create X.com's database. Elon says, we don't need a database person. Setting one up an SQL server is easy. Let me show you, Carol remembered. At a startup, Carol said, you have to wear every hat. The new experience for me was that there's no backstop, no calling anybody else. Musk spared no expense if something helped get X.com to market quickly. While Desk, for example, wouldn't speed up the release of a website, a better server might. Carroll recalled that Musk told the team to spec a Dell server capable of dealing with a flood of incoming web traffic. We configured the most expensive, most powerful server that we could literally buy, Carroll said. The price tag arrived in the tens of thousands of dollars, but Musk approved the purchase. Later, Brandon Spikes encased the server in bulletproof glass. It was a bank, so I thought I should take security seriously, he said. Speed forced improvisation. Even such consequential decisions as the look and feel of X.com's site were made on the fly. Carol remembered wondering, what's our front-end design going to look like? 
are we going to hire a designer? And Elon goes, I want it to look like Schwab, because I guess that's what he used at the time. So we pull up Schwab, and X.com's original color scheme ends up blue. Why? Because Schwab's color scheme is blue. The entire team felt the weight of the work. For me, with only six years of experience as a software engineer, Alexander said, it was like this tremendous responsibility to be in charge of figuring out, from a blank piece of paper, how to make the mutual fund system operational. Dealing with money and customers' finances, the engineers pushed themselves to write airtight code. We believed in writing clean code, very well-written code, Alexander said. But code quality existed in an uneasy balance with speed. I remember thinking, I am so glad I'm not an executive right now, because I wrote this code and it is not going to survive, Carol said. For all the chaos of this period, the team thrilled at watching the X.com website and product suite come to life. There was so much to do, recalled Mark Sullivan, and you were so exhausted. But you didn't mind doing it because you knew you were building this crazy thing, and every day you left, something new was developed or built or some new idea was generated. In many ways, X.com was a prototypical Palo Alto startup. But X.com did break with Silicon Valley orthodoxy in one critical respect. It used Microsoft products as the backbone of its technical architecture, rather than building atop an open-source operating system like Linux. For its proponents, the Microsoft platform offered a stable professional platform backed by a multi-billion dollar public company. For its critics, it was a closed, vaguely amateurish system that stripped the artistry out of programming. The Linux platform, by contrast, was often thought to be the technical architecture of the people. Capable of being rewritten from scratch, it was as open and flexible as the early Internet aspired to be. On Internet forums, this Microsoft versus Linux debate sometimes took on the character of a religious conflict. X.com's use of Microsoft technology would later become a flashpoint. But early on, its engineers believed Microsoft to be the obvious choice. We had done some research and concluded the only framework that was really commercially viable, one that could handle an enterprise system, was Microsoft's framework, engineer Scott Alexander said. And that was blasphemy in Silicon Valley. Speed mattered to the team. And unlike Linux, Microsoft offered a set of plug-and-play frameworks available to simplify the engineering workload. At X.com, we had this philosophy. Frameworks are good, remembered Alexander. Today, everybody uses frameworks. But back then, X.com said, instead of writing everything yourself, we should use frameworks. You can get a lot more done in little time. Musk supported the decision because it swapped flexibility for efficiency. If you fast forward like 10 or 12 years, now Linux has a lot of tools, Musk said. But not then. With Microsoft's pre-written software libraries, he noted, 
three X.com engineers could do the work of dozens. Musk announced that the site would launch by late November 1999. And as the Thanksgiving holiday came into view, the team pushed as hard as ever. At the time, they turned the traffic lights off at midnight in downtown Palo Alto. They all went to blinking red, recalled Carol. And I know this because we walked to our cars at like 1 or 2 a.m. to go home. The launch was set for Thanksgiving weekend, which troubled some on the team. I had previously been at J.P. Morgan and The Gap, and this is my first startup experience, recalled Amy Rowe Clement, who was just weeks into her X.com tenure. And it was like, you have Thanksgiving off, right? It's the biggest holiday in the country. The night before Thanksgiving, a handful of engineers, including Nontran and Musk, worked through the night. Musk called Scott Alexander the next day, Thanksgiving morning at around 11 a.m. I still remember the exact words he used. He said, Nan's been here all night, and he's not running on full thrusters anymore, so can you come in and just make sure everything's okay? Others recalled a livid company-wide email from Musk, excoriating those not at the office over the holiday. X.com services went live to the world over Thanksgiving 1999. Soon after the launch... The team left the office as a group and stopped at a nearby ATM. Musk inserted an X.com debit card, punched in his PIN, and requested cash. When the machine whirred and issued bills, the entire team celebrated. Elon was very, very happy with that, Sullivan recalled. In the summer of 1999, X.com's banking heavyweights tried to oust Musk as CEO, then fled. Following their departures, the company's headcount numbered in the low single digits. At this point, 394 University Avenue was better known for its first-floor bakery than its second-floor bank. The company was essentially a mysterious URL. Some loyal holdouts, Musk's dwindling capital and an idea. Four months later, that episode was ancient history. In the intervening period, X.com earned funding from a top-flight venture firm, built a functional product, grew its engineering and management benches, and signed agreements with banks at home and abroad. As ever, Musk wanted faster, more thoroughly dazzling results but at least he and his team could look back with relief and look forward with resolve. X.com was real. Part 2. Bad Bishop Chapter 8. If You Build It Despite each team's outsized ambitions, neither X.com nor Confinity was truly prepared for the customer growth they would soon see. Musk had forecast rapid scale, but his team dismissed it as musky and hyperbole. Now, though, his predictions were coming true. The first few days after launch, users came in drips, then in a deluge. The first day we had 10 people. The next day we had 20 people. The day after that we had 50 people. Colin Catlin said. 
Five weeks later, X.com's user base numbered in the thousands. Once it began, X.com employee Julie Anderson remembers, wildfire growth. After its frenetic launch, the X.com team enjoyed no post-deployment reprieve. There was a time when we were hoping things would slow down, Catlin said, recalling concern over the company's limited server capacity. We were worried the servers would overload and stop. The exhausted team kept building out the site, pushing updates with little time for rigorous testing. Ken Miller had just joined X.com during this period of fast growth. Brought on to help combat fraud issues, he was shocked by the daily new account reporting. It's like, oh, cool, first name Mick, middle initial E, last name Mouse, perfect. Oh, and they sent a transaction for $2,700, perfect. And we gave them a line of credit, Miller said. Miller soon took the heat from X.com's partner bank, First Western, which was aghast at the Disney character customers. Musk had promised every new user a physical checkbook and a debit card, each of which had to be mailed out by hand. I can't tell you how many checkbooks we printed to first name ASDF, last name JKL, and all of them got printed. Steve Armstrong remembered. On top of it all, X.com's phone line exploded with customer complaints. One news article pointed to X.com's call volume as evidence of early traction, but for its team members fielding calls in a makeshift back-office call center, dubbed The Cave, angry customers were a perpetual source of anxiety. Everyone, it seems, was a critic. In late January 2000, X.com's CEO's mother, May Musk, wrote to her son with product guidance. A friend and I don't use our titanium credit card much as we cannot get frequent flyer miles. We also cannot pay accounts from X.com. When are you going to make using X.com more attractive? Love, M. Security problems also dogged X.com's expansion. There were a ton of bugs we were trying to fix and a ton of people trying to hack the system and do SQL code injections and all sorts of things, said Musk, who had all but moved into the office during this period. Despite now having real users, X.com still functioned as a messy startup, to perhaps a greater extent than its customers, who were entrusting the team with their money, would have appreciated. One morning, Brandon Spikes discovered a homeless person asleep on the office couch. He was the nicest guy, Spikes remembered. He was just looking for a place to sleep. Some growing pains spilled violently into public view. On the morning of January 28, 2000, X.com awoke to a devastating New York Times headline. Security flaw discovered at online bank. The article detailed a vulnerability in X.com's payment process that allowed customers to transfer funds using only a bank routing number and checking account number, both easily obtainable from any voided or canceled check. In what may prove to be a cautionary tale about the headlong rush into electronic commerce, the Times wrote, 
a new online bank permitted customers for almost a month to transfer funds from any other account in the nation's banking system. The story picked up steam, earning follow-up coverage from the Washington Post and American Banker. X.com soon found itself in the midst of a destructive media storm. They ought to go out of business, one security analyst told the Washington Post. Frankly, I don't know how long they'll be able to survive as a business anyway. Yet another critic told U.S. Banker magazine, the name X.com is forever poisoned. They need to relaunch as Y.com or something else. Senior team members tried to contain the damage. They explained that there had been only a handful of unauthorized transactions totaling less than $25,000, and that the company had already taken measures to close the loophole. Users would now have to submit a voided check, a signature card, and a copy of their driver's license before moving money out of an external account. The team's defense, that this wasn't a security breach, but instead a policy issue, related to lax transfer regulations, was technically correct. But the negative press fit people's concerns about online banking, and the mood inside the company was pure panic. Anderson, whose responsibilities still included public relations, feared for her job. That whole thing was mortifying, she remembered of the crisis. It had huge potential consequences. Anderson remembered Musk's concern that the coverage would act like quick-drying cement, irreparably harming the company's reputation and dissuading new customers. In the end, Anderson kept her job. And by mid-February... X.com's rapid user growth drew media attention away from the uncomfortable fact that, for a moment, the company had built a digital bank robber's dream. An X.com employee from that era also pointed out a lesson the team learned from the security crisis that had nothing to do with breaches and bank safety. The extensive coverage left X.com with more signups than before the negative headlines. Just down University Avenue, Confinity's PayPal was experiencing growing pains of its own. Following a friends and family launch in late October, PayPal expanded more slowly than its X.com counterpart. But by mid-November, it had registered more than 1,000 users. By late winter, thousands more were signing up, and the company was consumed with work. People were working 20 hours and sleeping for four. Confinity engineer David Gauzebeck recalled. Levchin had moved a sleeping bag into the office and occupied it nightly. Other life concerns had to be put on hold. During this period, Gauzebeck had driven his car over a large piece of wood left in the road, ruining two tires and denting a wheel. I put the spare on and the other had a slow leak, he said. Without a free moment to fix it, he drove on the spare tire for the next three days. The PayPal product had launched with core questions unresolved. For instance, what if someone misspelled an email address? Sending money to M-A-C-K-S at Confinity.com instead of M-A-X at Confinity.com. 
Would Confinity force the money into a phantom account? Or hold it to see if an account was opened? The team's on-the-fly solution, debiting sender accounts and holding the money in escrow, solved one problem but caused another. Years later, the team discovered hundreds of thousands of dollars in escrow, all unclaimed. As the site grew, Confinity struggled with bugs, errors, and frequent outages. One telling crisis occurred early in 2000. The team left the office for an off-site, a chance to duck the day-to-day grind and discuss strategy. Every single person in our 20-person-ish crew went to this place, Levchin remembered, which had no cell phone or pager reception. The site went down and was dead for an hour. Ideas that seemed promising at launch became problematic live. Confinity users could retrieve money by check, for instance. But as customers mushroomed, so did demands for mailed payments, a cumbersome process. The team had to download the day's transactions by way of a dial-up modem, and the company's CFO, David Jakes, loaded the office's sole printer with blank checks, signed them by hand, and stuffed envelopes by the hundreds alongside his teammates. David Wallace oversaw customer service, and felt a sense of dread throughout this period. Users jammed the Confinity phone lines to the point that people couldn't call outbound on their desk phones. Existing users could scarcely be helped, he and others remembered, before the newest arrivals lodged complaints. This is the moment the company's been waiting for, Wallace said, but customer service is not prepared for. For both teams, the explosion of interest was exhausting yet energizing. Every day we'd all come in and group around like little chipmunks just to see how many people signed up, X.com's Colin Catlin remembered. At Confinity, the so-called World Domination Index tracked user growth. The program provided reliable dopamine hits for the team, until they realized it was also dominating the company's scarce server capacity. The World Domination Index had to be disabled until further notice. Confinity celebrated its growth with confections. When the PayPal service hit 10,000 users, the company hosted a party with five cakes, one shaped like the number one and four others shaped like zeros. When the site hit 100,000 users, they reprised the party with an added sixth zero cake. But what explained the sudden interest? Neither X.com nor Confinity could claim to have invented online banking or email payments. Around the same time, users could make digital payments using CyberCoin, ClickShare, or Millicent, among countless others. Need a mobile wallet? Try OneClick Charge's SuperThin Wallet, or QPass's micropayment system, or Trintec's NetWallet. Keen to bank online? Sign up for Security First Network Bank, NetBank, Wingspan, or CompuBank. Even companies not in the payment space had a tough time ignoring the sector's lure. Ryan Donahue, who became Confinity's second designer, 
was working at a struggling digital invite website called Mambo.com. In late 1999, Mambo's leaders told Donahue and others that the company would pivot into payments and try to compete with, among others, PayPal. That was enough for Donahue to reach out to David Sachs, whom he had met at a bar. I just wrote to David Sachs and said, You know, I think I'd like to come work for you rather than, you know, try to beat you, Donahue admitted. Even Musk, for all his boasts, was clear that X.com and Confinity represented evolutions, rather than revolutions, on the era's payment technology. It wasn't even that we invented money transfer. We just made it useful, Musk said. Other companies had the idea of doing payments before Confinity or X.com. They just didn't do it right. He pointed to Accept.com and Billpoint as two sites rendering similar services. One way in which X.com and Confinity did it right was by choosing email as the backbone of their platforms, riding a surging wave of adoption. In 1999, Americans sent more email messages than the Postal Service delivered packages. Email had even gone Hollywood. In 1998, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan starred in the romantic comedy You've Got Mail. Named after the well-known email notification of the popular internet service provider, AOL, whose plot revolved around an email-based romance. Confinity hopped on the bandwagon, riffing on the film title in PayPal's referral emails. You've got cash, their subject lines read. In time, PayPal filed a trademark claim on You've Got Cash and You've Got Money. AOL issued a legal challenge to PayPal's claim. Of course, neither team had set out to build the world's foremost email payment system. For X.com, like Confinity, the feature emerged as an afterthought. In the fall of 1999, Musk and another X.com engineer discussed the concept of emailing money from one user to another and they determined that an email address could function as a unique identifier, not unlike the digits of a checking account number. Nick Carroll, the engineer, recalled that the program took only a few days to build. If even that, Musk concurred. It's trivial to do money transfer. It's literally you have an SQL database with one number, decrement that, and move it to another row in the database— it's super dumb. My kid made one. He's 12. Carol and Musk alike found the feature's success surprising. It was totally an add-on, Carol admitted. Amy Rowe Clement recalled that the X.com team thought of the person-to-person -person payment product as simply its user acquisition engine. It wasn't the core business. That was the online financial superstore. Indeed, Musk was frustrated that X.com's other products didn't generate the same excitement. We would show people the hard part, the agglomeration of financial services, and nobody was interested. Then we'd show people the email payments, which was the easy part, and everybody was interested, Musk explained in a 2012 commencement speech at Caltech. So I think it's important to take feedback from your environment. 
You want to be as closed-loop as possible. Despite frustration, the team responded to the product's strong market feedback and shifted focus to the incipient email product. Musk insisted, for instance, that the original X.com sign-up email look and feel as though a real human being sent it. It was very important that the email comes from the person, not from X, Musk said. Some marketing email from a company carries no weight, whereas an email from a friend carries high weight. Given its early success, Musk wanted to broadcast the triumph of X.com's email product to the world. But Mike Moritz, his lead investor, advised otherwise. He wanted me to keep talking about us being a bank as misdirection, Musk explained. In the email money transfer battle, Confinity enjoyed a lead, thanks in part to the insistence of a single team member, David Sachs. While many viewed Confinity's email program as an appendage of its main Palm Pilot product, Sachs, Teal's college friend and an ex-McKinsey consultant, thought otherwise. I wanted to put a bullet in the Palm Pilot thing, he recalled. Meanwhile, Sachs boosted the email money transfer product and urged Levchin to give it a place of prominence on Confinity's inaugural website. With his red-hot focus on the company's product, Sachs fell into a role missing from Confinity's original org chart. Sachs became, in effect, Confinity's first head of product. He soon discovered that product management was as much about avoiding distractions as producing breakthroughs. As I took over product in the company, Sachs remembered, I kind of became like Dr. No because I'd always have to say no to everyone's stupid ideas. It was really important that we not squander our precious engineering bandwidth on ideas that didn't make sense for the long-term strategy of the company. Sachs became a zealot for efficiency within Confinity, and simplicity without. When he saw, for instance, that an early iteration of the PayPal sign-up process forced new users through seven web pages and two Palm Pilot sinks, he was horrified. On the office whiteboard, he outlined a new single-page sign-up form, and after getting approval from Teal and Levchin, Sachs marched all the engineers in and said, Build this. Sachs' pursuit of simplicity emerged as a rallying cry for the product team. You would count the number of fields and the number of characters and, visually, the mind share of only doing what you must do on that page, Denise Aptekar recalled. That's where a lot of my fundamental product instincts were formed. Giacomo de Gregoli, another product team member, remembered Sachs's frustration with one particular design. Sachs was like, I do not understand why this is so complicated. This should be as easy as email, DeGregoli recalled. Soon, a photo of David Sachs with the words, As easy as email, graced the office walls. Sachs's uncompromising stance often put him at odds with Confinity's engineering team. He pushed back forcefully against what he saw as extraneous technological creations with no practical applications for users. 
It wasn't enough to build cutting-edge technology, which was the engineering team's focus. Sachs wanted to ensure that users could derive value from it. This tension pushed the team in productive directions. The decision to focus on emailing money rather than beaming it, for example, proved prescient. We always had a killer app, Sachs quipped to the Wall Street Journal years later. It was just buried on our site. By the end of 1999, just weeks after its launch, PayPal's Palm Pilot product counted approximately 13,000 users. By the time it was officially nixed in late 2000, after a full year on the market, the product's user count had stagnated at roughly the same size. When we were first told that we were going to shut the Palm Pilot product down, I just remember thinking, this is kind of sad, for a very small number of people, David Wallace said, chuckling. While both X.com and Confinity blasted off thanks to email, another tactic helped them reach escape velocity. X.com and Confinity both paid new users cash bonuses to sign up. In time, this bonus effort was hailed as one of the all-time great viral marketing programs. But starting out, there was something vaguely disreputable about it. If a firm had to pay users, did that imply an inability to earn them organically? Weren't users supposed to pay a business for services, not the other way around? Luke Nosek, Confinity's head of marketing, had examined other digital finance players' efforts to court customers. Each new user of Beans, Flues, or Digicash would receive a free nominal sum of digital currency. By the same logic, Confinity decided to confer $10 on each new PayPal user. But Nosek wanted to go beyond the competition so he began considering how free money could grow the payments network, not just lure individuals. The seed was planted in Nosek's college years. In 1996, Hotmail had added the phrase, Get your free web-based email, with a sign-up link to the signature line of every email. That link pulled in hundreds of thousands of new users in record time. Two Hotmail investors, Tim Draper and Steve Jurvetson wrote about the idea in a piece published on January 1, 1997, for a newsletter popular among early technology enthusiasts, including then-undergraduate Nosek. Attention is finite, Draper and Jurvetson wrote. Rising above the noise of a thousand voices requires creativity. Shouting is not very creative. Just hanging up a web shingle and hoping for visitors is not very creative. Rather, new companies can structure their businesses in a way that allows them to grow like a virus and lock out the existing bricks-and-mortar competitors through innovative pricing and exploitation of these competitors' legacy distribution channel conflict. The article's neologism, Viral Marketing, stuck with Nosek as he worked on PayPal. He saw an opportunity to leverage free money more effectively than beans, flues, and others. What if Confinity offered users 
not just money for signing up, but another $10 to give away to friends. And if those friends signed up for the service, what if the original gift giver received another $10? Suddenly, Confinity would incentivize person-to-person transmission, pushing the standard industry marketing play from merely infectious to full-on contagious. From a financial perspective, though, the idea sounded ludicrous. To not only pay customers to give away the company's money, but then to reward them for doing so? It looked like a surefire path to bankruptcy. The caretaker of Confinity's accounting books, CFO David Jakes, was not exactly enthused by the bonus proposal. You've got to be shitting me, he remembered thinking. But as the Confinity team toyed with the concept, they began to recognize its power. Too many referral programs had failed because of one-sided incentive structures. Here, they saw an opportunity for a two-sided program with the power to turn customers into advocates. The program struck a particular chord with prospects who saw $10 as a substantial sum. Jakes remembered his wife's muted reaction upon receiving her PayPal referral email. Then Jake sent one to his college-aged niece. I love it! This is fantastic! This is beautiful! She told him. Other Confinity employees joked that the bonus program represented the largest transfer of venture capital to college students in history. As justification, the team compared its incentives to traditional banks' customer acquisition costs, which they estimated to be between $100 and $200 per customer. Confinity's proposed giveaways would cost it only $20 to $30 per customer. So therefore, every time we added a user, David Sachs explained, laughing, we weren't spending $20, we were making $180. This was dot-com thinking before the crash. Eric Klein recalled watching rings of referrals emerge in real time, as the graph of the PayPal network began to bloom and grow. X.com had independently arrived at a similar conclusion about referrals and incentives. Elon had the story of the bank who was giving away toasters to new customers, Nick Carroll remembered. And he was like, well, if we just give them cash, that's sufficient. At first, Musk suggested $5. The number eventually rose to $20. But the team soon discovered that a one-time bonus simply wasn't enough. It was important to incent the referrer and the referee, Musk said. Not just one or the other. You need to reward the initiation of it. And you need to reward the completion of it. In addition to its $20 bonus, the X.com team decided to give a $10 bonus to anyone who referred a new user. The giveaway shocked some members of the X.com team. You have to take your hat off to Elon for being willing to take his own money and basically give it away to build this new thing, when there is no way to know if it's going to work, Catlin said. He was willing to take whatever he had left and put it on the line. Musk also doubled down on his financial commitment to the company, by moving all of his personal bank accounts to X.com from Schwab.
Musk's was not just one of X.com's earliest accounts. It was far and away its largest. X.com and Confinity both tapped into the public's newfound embrace of email and the age-old thrill of free money. But those didn't entirely account for their rapid growth. The final ingredient arrived by way of Internet auctions. French-born Iranian-American engineer Pierre Omidyar had not set out to build an online auction behemoth when he coded AuctionWeb and posted it to his personal website, www.ebay.com, so named for his web consulting company Echo Bay Technology Group. At first, AuctionWeb featured just Omidyar's discards, including a broken laser pointer which he listed for $14.83. When someone actually purchased it, Omidyar was astonished and realized that his side hustle might have a bright future. That someone was Mark Frazier. On the road doing presentations, he wanted a laser pointer but was unable to afford a new one and suspected his boss would balk at buying one for him. As a professed electronics geek, Frazier first tried to build his own, but it didn't perform as he'd hoped. Somebody pointed me at a brand new website which turned out to be eBay, and I was amazed to discover a broken laser pointer that was listed. Frazier later shared in a video testimonial for eBay's 20th anniversary, and I thought, hey, I could probably make that work. Four years later, AuctionWeb was eBay a billion-dollar publicly traded company, and a defining dot-com brand. The earliest account of a Confinity eBay linkage came from April 1999. On April 8th, Teal and his team met with Peter Davison and Graham Lynette, two of Confinity's investors. In an email sent to Davison and Lynette, Teal outlined the main takeaways from their discussion, including... We will investigate further whether and what kind of collaboration with eBay might be possible, especially given the consumer-to-consumer disintermediation model that our two companies share. However, the team shelved the idea for the rest of 1999. eBay was such a sketchy company, Teal later told a Stanford audience. Multi-level marketing people selling junk on the Internet— Confinity, on the other hand, built cutting-edge mobile payment technology. Never the twain would meet. When eBay acquired the payments startup Billpoint in May of 1999, Confinity assumed that the purchase would turn Billpoint into eBay's default payment system. eBay had responded, in part, to Amazon's acquisition of Accept.com eBay had been in talks with Accept.com when Amazon's Jeff Bezos came in with a steep offer. Having lost their chance to acquire Accept.com, eBay quickly purchased Billpoint, which had recently closed its Series A financing, with Sequoia Capital as the lead backer. Ironically, Billpoint's earliest ambitions mirrored some of Confinity's. Jason May, Billpoint's technical head, had poured through the literature on micropayments and explored the trajectories of digital currencies like Millicent and Flues. 
Phew, okay. We don't have to be on eBay, Nosek remembered thinking. But eBay soon experienced delays integrating Billpoint into its payment flow. And by late in the year, eBay's buyers and sellers were still sorting out auction payments on their own. Users alternately used cash, checks, money orders, wire transfers, and an emerging group of online payment services, including PayPal. Sachs recalled the precise moment the team discovered PayPal's use on eBay. An eBay user had emailed Confinity Customer Service, seeking permission to use the PayPal logo on her auction page. She also wanted the team's help resizing it. David Wallace forwarded the email on to the team, not thinking much of it amid thousands of more urgent complaints. The team wondered if this logo resizing ask was a one-off request, or if there might be more like her. Luke Nosek, Chad Hurley, and David Sachs huddled together and searched www.ebay.com for the term PayPal. Thousands of auction listings popped into view. It was one of these